Faith is kind of a big deal in this walk, and it constantly needs to be stretched um, as we move ahead. Man, I'm thankful for what God's doing in our life. I was reflecting um, uh, this week, uh, Tara and I did, did a marriage conference in Colorado last weekend, and just been reflecting a lot on maybe the early days of our marriage and our relationship, and I remember on our honeymoon. So we had like the dopest honeymoon ever, because first of all, we didn't have to pay for it, and that's like... Anything you don't have to pay for is like amazing. Um, and like a friend of hers, uh, that, that she was a volleyball coach back then, and one of the, the team moms, they had this gorgeous house on a private island in the Bahamas. I know I'm making you jealous already. I'm making myself jealous. I want to go back so bad. Um, and like uh, it, it, its claim to fame is that Mariah Carey stayed there before we did, so... Yeah, that was kind of cool. So you can say there's like a, a sweet, sweet kind of setup. But, you know, in the Bahamas, like it rains like once in the afternoon. This happens in Central and South Florida as well. Uh, but it'll rain once in the summer in the afternoon for like 30 minutes and it'll be done with, right? I mean, you guys know how that goes if you've lived in Central or South Florida. Not as much here on that same pattern, but uh, down there it certainly does that. It rains for about a half hour uh, in the afternoons. And so we were just like, what are we going to do? We're on this gorgeous beach and we'll go inside. And so uh, we found things to do, as you can imagine. Um, but one of the things we found to do um, was playing Monopoly. So we, we, we played Monopoly and we'd play different board games. And so one of the things with um, uh, that game, though, is I had kind of been raised in an environment when you play Monopoly, you're a wheeler and you're a dealer. Like that's how you win. Monopoly. Taryn was raised on a different type of Monopoly, where we're like we just all played happily ever <laughs> after together. And like, you want railroad? You can have railroad. You know, yeah, you you need railroad for your thing. I just wasn't raised in that environment. I was extremely competitive, and I was hustling. I was making deals. I was like trying to turn one property into three properties into a couple of monopolies. And it got to where she was mad at me, and like, and it lasted like still like if you talk to her about it, like you'll still feel a little bit of like anger that'll pop up about that moment that we shared playing Monopoly. Needless to say, we've never played Monopoly again. Um, but do what? And won't she will not play Monopoly with me? Um, and I don't really have time in my schedule to play Monopoly anymore, but um, I still love it. I love just the idea of, of that competition and, and deals and stuff. And uh, I, I learned my lesson there that really uh, our marriage wasn't about a competitive thing. But so many times uh, our marriages and any of our relationships are like a competitive sport. <laughs> it's like, um, it's a battle of the wills. You ever been in that place in a relationship where it's like, who's, whose will is going to win out this time on what we're having for dinner or what we're not having for dinner? You know, or, or it's a battle of, you know, who's working harder. It's a battle of who's bringing this to the table or Who's going to win this argument? There's always this competitive thing going on. And, and, and as we've just been continuing this series, we've got a couple more weeks. And actually next week, Taryn's going to team teach. And we're just going to be up here just sharing from our heart on God's design for marriage. And just we're doing this thing, doing life together. We're just going to be team teaching that. So looking forward to that, to close out this series. But I really just want to share from my heart on which an area that honestly I've been deeply shaped in, not just from that day uh, around the Monopoly table. Uh, but my entire journey with Christ has been deeply shaped as I've under, come to understand how deeply prideful I was. And saying yes to Jesus was not just my get out of hell free card, but it was a constant crucifixion of my pride. 
and that the only way I'd be able to follow, follow God's plan for my life is through a life of complete submission and humility and the life that God calls us to. And if you come in this room and you're kind of thinking maybe you're a humble person or you're in this room and you're like, no, I know I've got some pride issues, wherever you're at, what I hope to do is as we look into the text, know that humility at the very core is the essence of what God wants to do to heal our relationships and to bring forth the depth of relationships that he wants in our life. And I want to turn to Philippians chapter 2 here in just a moment. Um, but really, if you don't know the, who the Apostle Paul is, his story is pretty amazing. He was a religious Jew, and he was like the best Jew around. <laughs> he was like super good at it. Like he tried to keep all the rules, and he even brags sometimes, like sort of bragging. But he was like, I was the best Jew. <laughs> like I kept all the rules, and like, you know, I, I was very good at keeping the rules. And, and maybe even if you've been a believer for a long time, you've been really good at keeping the rules, but maybe we've missed out on this relationship thing. And Paul missed it um, a great deal. But one day, um, he, I mean, Paul would even persecute Christians. And, and one day he's, he's on a, his journey and, and he has this supernatural encounter with Jesus, like supernatural, like blew his mind and that God brought on him physical blindness, like out of nowhere, physically blinded. And over the course of a, a few days while he is physically blinded, God opens his spiritual eyes. This encounter with Jesus was far greater than this kind of crazy thing that happened with his eyes and, and what he had gone through. But, but God had a call on his life and a plan for his life. And so he, his call was to, to share and to extend this good news, this gospel good news into all the world that this relationship that had been uh, God with the people of Israel for many, many decades and, and generations and, and uh, uh, millennia nearly, um, uh, several millennia, God had a, a plan for their life and uh, for not just the Jews, but for also the Gentiles. And Paul's place was going to be to share the good news uh, and to make sure the gospel went forward to Gentiles. So if you are not fully-blooded Jewish in this room, that is you and that is me. But Paul, like Paul, that was his calling to spread this good news there. So he began to do these missionary travels, and on one of these missionary travels, he, he's beginning to push into Europe. And he, he meets this woman named Lydia in this town called Philippi, which is in what we know outside of Macedonia, Greece uh, today. And he meets this woman, Lydia, and she's kind of girl boss, hustler, solo entrepreneur, making it work for her family. She sold fine linens and, you know, uh, fine uh, clothing type things. And, and, and he meets her and, and he shares the gospel with her and she receives it with faith and her whole family comes to faith. And, and that really is our first church plant in the, the continent of Europe is off of Paul's missionary travel to Philippi. And so with that in mind, later Paul would, would write a letter back to this church that he has helped plant and, and start and really sees spiritual oversight over. And he's in prison for sharing the gospel and now he's pinning down this letter to the church to share his heart. And at the end of chapter one, as we know it, he says this, church, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. I, I want you to be so rooted and grounded in Christ that, that nothing can sway it. Like, like the external influences aren't gonna shake it. And I think the truth of the matter in many of our relationships and and I see this a lot of times. Folks will come to me and they've got some marital issues or some relational issues. And really all I see is external 
issues that they're talking about, but really at the core of it, it's not being deeply rooted and grounded in Christ. And Paul's, if you'll live a life that's worthy of that calling, and so what we've received that we'll also be able to give in our relationships. And so I want to read the first five verses in chapter two, and then we're going to talk about this for a little while, and we'll kind of close out with the last five or six verses um, here. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if anything good has come out of this relationship and encouragement, if any comfort from his love, if if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Like, if this thing is real, these things should be flowing. Like, if this genuine relationship, then you should have encouragement from being united with Christ. You should have comfort from his love. You should have common sharing in the spirit. And then he kind of speaks like a pastor, like, you know, I think sometimes we'll look at this and, and be like, Paul's just like, hey, just get along and that'll make my joy complete. Just, just don't bicker and don't fight. And maybe sometimes that's how we understand this, but I think it's far deeper on our relationships. If, if this is here, then this is what should be happening. We should be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So let's just pause right there for just a second and talk about being like-minded and, and having the same love because this is, this is core and essential to every relationship. And I'm gonna pass back and forth between our normal relationships within the church, which I really believe is what Paul is talking about. But I also wanna speak very specifically into marriages in the room or for those of you that are in dating relationships, serious or not serious or engaged or wherever you're at. I think the scripture has a ton to say about all of our all of our relationships, because he's really going to give us a path forward on how to operate and what should be, if this is evident, if that encouragement's there, this is what should be flowing out of that. And, and he says this, have this, like, be like-minded. And, and I think this is what we look for early on in maybe a, a dating relationship. We want somebody who's kind of like us, you know, but they say opposites attract. So I think, you know, we, we kind of project that. And so, you know, where we're like, oh, I, opposites attract in my relationship, therefore they, they are in every relationship. But, but I think there are these things that we find like-mindedness. There's ways in which we connect with under, other individuals. But really the depth of this Greek word proneo is really about the depth of desire and, and the direction in which we're pulling in. And, and far too many times our relationships, we're, we're pulling apart, we're pulling apart because we're kind of going in different directions and we, we don't have the same end goal. Um, I always think about it like um, a, a, uh, a baseball team um, where there's home and away. And some of our marriages are running like that. It's like home and away. And, it's, and instead on the scoreboard, it should be home and home. Like when I'm sitting down with her now when, when we're playing Monopoly, which we never do, but when we're playing another game, it's like I just want, I just want her to win, and it wasn't because I'm scarred by that experience, which I sort of am. Um, it, it's not because of that, but because we're on the same team, and I constantly want to be pulling in the same direction, but so many times we're feeling strife because we're kind of pulling in different directions, and the same is true in the church, and he's going to tell us like what's, the, what's at the core heart of why we're pulling in different directions here in just a second, and that'll be the bulk of what we discussed. But, but we've got to be like-minded. We've got to be pulling in the same direction. And when we're finding tension there. That's why. And that's why the scriptures teach us about to not be unequally yoked, which is someone who's, who's not a believer. And if you're married to someone who's not a believer now, the scriptures also say you shouldn't divorce him over that. But 
That's why the scriptures teach us originally for us to, to know and to, to be equally yoked, to have the same desire. So we're pulling in the same direction because otherwise we're just going to pull apart because we have foundational different values um, and, and it can be very difficult uh, within marriages. But again, the scripture teaches us to, to not divorce over that. But, but he goes on to say, having the same love. And I think I've, I've talked about this in the past and he, and he uses the word agape. And, and in the Greek language, there's actually four words for the word love, you know. In our language, I love pizza. I also love my wife, you know. So it's kind of the same word, and we use it for a lot of different things. Um, but in the Greek language, there's four different words. The first is eros, which you would probably recognize where we get the word erotic, where it's just, which is sexual love. That's the, the first, um, you know, Greek word for love. And then there's phileo, which is a friendship-type love. And then there is storge, which is a parental Love, and then finally there is agape, and that's God's unconditional love. And if you're dating right now, or if you're married, or, or maybe you, you have past relationships to look back on uh, that are not too distant in the future, let me just ask you, how, out of what love did that relationship start? Did, did that love, did that relationship start through eros love? Sexual attraction, was it lust that kind of led us together? And then from there, we're like, yeah, we're enjoying this, so let's just keep this going. Or was it was a friendship, we just kind of had this connection and we got along and we laughed together. You say parental love, Storge, like, did it start with Storge love? That's super weird, Oedipus Rex stuff. Um, <laughs> But no, I actually think there is something to this where some of our relationships started from storge love, where we were dependent and we were kind of rescuer, savior for another, that we were actually bringing them along, that we were actually kind of savior complex in their brain. We're always fixing their problems or their addictions or whatever. And I think we have some storge and you're actually, some of our relationships started from that place. And wherever your relationship started, because I'd, I'd say the majority of them in the room probably didn't start with agape, even if we'd like to think they did, most of them probably started from the other, if we're really honest with ourselves. But wherever they're at, wherever they're at in the future, now I, I think they've got to transform into flowing out of agape love. They must flow out of agape love because it's the only one that's unconditional. And so if, if we're in this thing till death do its part, if, if we want that for our lives, then it, the depth of it must be unconditional love because even one of these, we're like, well, parental love, that's I have unconditional love for my kids. No, you don't. The condition is they are your kids. If they're not your kids, you don't love them unconditionally. <laughs> that's the condition. And so, <laughs> you know, so, so even that, so the, our mo- the, the depth of that faithfulness comes out of God's unconditional love for us, and we must flow from that. And he's saying, you got to have that same love. you got to have that same love. And frankly, in your relationship, you're going to need it. You're going to need it because we're not always going to be the best version of ourselves. We're not going to be the romantic one writing the cute little notes with the cute little pictures. I'm sorry, I don't do that anymore. But I used to write the cute little pictures and the cute little notes and the cute little mixtapes. And we're not always going to be that version of ourselves. I did it once, so. Okay, I was about to go on a rabbit trail. That would have told some really bad things. Um, Anyway, um, I'll tell her privately later. Um, No, we must be flowing from this place of unconditional love because, frankly, one day we're going to need it. And and if it started in a different way, then we, we need, in Christ, we need to make that transformation 
we need to do it, whether it's flipping of a light switch or, or day after day, understanding God's love, that, that living a life worthy of that calling and operating of that. So let's get into the meat of what I really what I want to share, because I think Paul gives us some really, really specific things. And when we dive into these, not just marital relationships, but dating relationships, friendships, within the body of Christ, this is a big deal when it comes to walking in unity in our relationships um, and to really walk in. And I think this will break a lot of things that are going on, break a lot of tension if we'll begin to operate out of humility uh, like we see here. So um, I, I made her so mad that she's got... No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, the, the first thing he says is, is do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. So we've got to eliminate selfish ambition out of our life. It, it, it's got it's to get out of our life. And the truth of the matter, I, I, let me just kind of define that for us first. Selfish ambition, a desire to put one's needs first. A desire to put me first. With always my end goal in mind. It's, it's my desire for promotion. It's uh, my desire to, to promote myself in front of others. I asked Taryn last weekend uh, when we were in Colorado, we were watching the Olympics for a few minutes. I said, babe, what's, like, if you could compete in any Olympic sport, what would it be? And I don't think I ever got a straight answer out of her. But I had one in my head, and I'm like, I would love to be a part of the speed skating. I think the speed skating is just so cool. It's known as, like, the fastest sport on flat land. Like, it, they go over 30 miles an hour. There's so many interesting things about that, about speed skating to me and why I'd want to be a part of it. Um, but, but one of the most interesting things to me is what's called team pursuit. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's where they're actually working together. Like everybody from Germany is like working together, everybody from the U.S. We're working together to try to get everybody, our whole team up to the front and as fast as we can. I, I think it's so powerful that, that, that one will be up front kind of blocking the wind from hitting and then they'll, they'll pass each other. And there's just this give and take of partners and teammates working together to help each other go further, help each other go faster. And I think there's something so deep and beautiful about that when it comes to our relationships that I'm willing to block the wind so that you can come around me. I'm willing to take what the enemy's, uh, you know, taken for you today in prayer. I'll bring it so that you can come around and you can move further today because tomorrow you'll, you'll offer the same thing. And we both just keep going along like this. Another thing I think is really interesting about the speed skating is the posture that they have to stay with. I won't make you stand up, but just get into this posture for a while. And like, it's the one sport I feel like in the world where like they have the most awkward, uncomfortable posture in which they, the lower they are to the ground, the faster they can go. Right? Because it's aerodynamic. The lower you are to the ground, the smaller you can make yourself, the faster you'll be able to go. And man, isn't that a kingdom example? Isn't that a kingdom principle that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, then we must be the least? John the Baptist said it. He said, I must become less so that Christ can be lifted up, so Christ can be exalted. And from Old Testament to New Testament, all through the scriptures, we see this kind of general quote going. He who, God, God will, will humble the proud, but he will exalt the humble. God wants to raise us up. We see it in the disciples jockeying for position at Jesus's right hand, selfish ambitions. One time they even send their mom to go talk to Jesus about being seated at his right hand. And he's like, guys, you're missing it. In my kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to become the least. 
I'll just say it like this. The height of your potential in the kingdom of God is directly correlated to the depth you're willing to go to serve others. The height of your potential in the kingdom of God is directly correlated to the depth you're willing to go to serve others. That's what Jesus has called us to. And the truth of the matter, we're always jockeying for position in conversation, um, in uh, our, our finances or how we want that to go or with position and promotion. We're constantly jockeying. But let me tell you these two things. Selfish ambition will lead you astray from God's best in your life. You will sell yourself so short by relying on your own ambitions. When you let God fill up the ambitions, when you let God take the lead, you'll go so much further and so much faster. And if not, you're just going to be led astray because you're leading the way with your selfish ambitions. You completely miss what God wants to do in your life in the very best when you're trying to take control of it. And so it's about losing control in many ways. And the second thing is it'll also tear down intimacy at every level in your relationships. In your conversations, it'll tear down emotional intimacy. When you're in game, it's for your needs to be met or for you to be heard. But when we both come to the table, selfish ambitions aside in our conversation, and I'm just listening, and I'm here to serve, and we come with that, and I'm not trying to control the, where the outcome is. I'm just letting God do his thing, and, and I've released control of it, and I'm moving away from the selfish. It really creates emotional intimacy instead of tearing it down. Sexually, this is true too. In the bedroom, if you're always fighting for your needs and not for that of the other, it'll break down every uh, sexual intimacy that you have. It, it, your spouse will no longer want to be intimate with you sexually. And so you've got to be mindful of that, that even in that, like we have selfish ambitions to just get our own needs met. Finances, you name it, it'll break down that. Charles Spurgeon said, men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. Men, women, couples do not quarrel. The body of Christ will not quarrel when our selfish ambitions have come to an end. I mean, just think about that in our local body here, in our church, what God would do if we really just allowed and eliminated and let God destroy those selfish ambitions. The truth is that it's hard to do. Here's just a few thoughts on if you've got selfish ambition, you're just self-aware, that you've got some stuff and God's revealing that in this moment. Man, I've been selfish with how I've been controlling my marriage or how I've been controlling these relationships and it's always kind of my I'm thinking about myself the whole time. Here, here's just a few thoughts. Intentionally put yourself in positions of humility. Like intentionally put yourself in a place to serve, right? If you're struggling through this and, and you really need some breakthrough, find a place to uh, serve in God's house. Like constantly, uh, take the least, like work, on, work with cleaning the bathrooms or taking out the trash or, or whatever you can do that's just a position of, of humility, I think that's why, honestly, short-term mission trips are so powerful because we intentionally thrust ourselves into an environment where we have nothing to gain and God shapes humility in us in that time by intentionally putting ourselves in that. Secondly, confess your sin. Confess your sin. There's, I don't know if there's anything that'll break down that pride more. Nothing will humble you, humble you more than having to admit it, that you're being a selfish brat, right? <laughs> Me and my wife end up, uh, Taryn, me and Taryn, we, we do that often, actually. We're like, sorry, I'm being selfish. Like, we just realize it, and we'll immediately confess that we're, we're doing it. James 5.16 is so powerful. It says, confess your sins one to another, and pray for each other, and God will, um, 
for each other that you may be healed, that there's something through confession and prayer that healing will happen of this selfishness. Dig for the why. Why, are, why am I being so selfish? Why do I feel the need to promote myself and push ahead? Um, or if you, uh, maybe you also consider Christ. And then maybe you've got a spouse that's dealing um, with some selfish ambition, constantly putting themselves ahead of you, never thinking about you. I think there's some things to talk through here. Maybe you've got a friend that's doing this. Um, just a few thoughts. One, realize that complaining won't fix it. Nagging's not going to fix it. Prayer will work. It may not work in your time. It may not work in your way. But nagging and complaining was not going to fix it. Have you ever heard of a marriage being fixed by complaining and nagging? No. No. You've heard of a spouse being driven out of the home, out of complaining and nagging. But just trust in the Lord. That same passage goes on to say that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Trust in that prayer. Believe in that prayer. Continue serving them without enabling. That's something, there's, there's a fine line in there and it's so hard to figure out, uh, but lovingly communicate how their actions will make them feel. I think I shared this at the marriage conference last year. How you start your sentence dictates what you want that, to take place after that. If you start with you always, like just know a fight's coming because you just picked a fight with somebody. But if you start it with, hey, I want you to know how I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling that you, you don't care about my needs. And the immediate response for, uh, the natural response for a spouse is to actually lean in and be like, well, that's a problem. I, I want you to know that I care for your needs because we have to trust each other's heart in that. Second thing he says is not only to eliminate selfish ambition, but to destroy or eliminate vain conceit. Vain conceit. I would just define this like this. It's an excessively favorable opinion of oneself, an excessively favorable opinion of oneself. I remember when I was in middle school, and these middle school girls, if you ever need to get called in to check, ask a middle school girl. So I remember these middle school girls, uh, my classmates, but Kyle, you're so conceited. And I was in middle school, and this is before I had a phone with Google that I could look up what conceited meant. So I didn't know what conceited meant. And so I tried to play it off, though. I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because, like, seriously, I didn't know what they were talking about. But they were saying, you're so conceited. But eventually, like, I, I understood what they were saying. is like, you're so self-obsessed. You're obsessed with yourself. You're constantly thinking about your image and constantly trying to get your word in, constantly thinking you're right and... And, and many times as I came to understand that, if I would hear that again, it would make me so angry because I knew it was so true. And for years and years until I met Jesus, I had this bloated image of self. I had this bloated image of self. Constantly trying to distract people from my broken image of self. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're constantly distracting from the brokenness. By, by throwing out maybe an, an ex, like an overwhelming, like, you know, um, like, hey, do you know about this accomplishment? Do you know about this about me? We're constantly putting that in, in front of people. But eventually, after I figured it out and I met Jesus in uh, my mid-teenage years, uh, that all changed because Jesus looked past my bloated image of self. He looked past my pride. He looked past my depression. He looked past my loneliness. He looked past my rejection. And he loved me right where I was. And it changed everything. 
that the, the unconditional love that I received in that moment meant that I didn't have to work for it anymore. That everything that I would return back to him was just, it was just humble worship and out of gratitude for what he did in loving me and sending his son to die for me. But many of us, we've got this bloated image of self and, and we have this excessive opinion. And, and even if we don't think we have it, I think this kind of hides underneath the surface many times. I just to help you kind of see what I'm talking about. I think we've got vain conceit when one, when we feel the need to remind others of our accomplishments or our sacrifices. <laughs> I caught myself in this one this weekend. Come on, I'm just being honest. Caught myself in this one this weekend. Uh, Taryn's feeling sick. That's actually where she went. She's been uh, up and down the past few days. Um, and so Friday, she was in bed all day long. And so I did what I rarely have the opportunity to do. I'm not usually home all day long, taking care of all three kids um, by myself. But I did that, right? And I, and I survived, praise God. Like, it was an act of God that we survived. We had a great day, actually. And so at the end of the day, it was super productive. Got a lot of things done. Made dinner and the whole deal. Um, but I caught myself in this later when I'm in the room with her. And she's laying there feeling like garbage. And I'm just like... This is what I did. This is what I did. I'm just like waiting for her to be like, you're so awesome. You know, and I think we, that, that desire to be recognized, that desire to put ourselves in the very best light to others um, is part of this vain conceit. The, uh, we've got vain conceit when we believe what we do is more important than what our spouse or what other believers do. Someone that serves in the band thinks that, that this ministry is more important than the coffee ministry. There's, prominence doesn't equal significance in the body of Christ, and it doesn't mean that in our homes either. Um, when we compare our possessions, our success, our appearance, our status against others, we've probably got some vain conceit going. Comparing how we look or what kind of car we're driving or, or, or where we're at in our career at this age in our life. When we do that, we're just allowing room for vain conceit to pull in because we're constantly comparing. How do we rid ourselves from this vain conceit? It's got to come out of our life. And, and uh, Paul's given us some instructions here about it. Um, one, I would just say become a relentless encourager. Where vain conceit will want to make you have kind of the focus and the highlight, become a relentless encourager. This did not come naturally for me. I've told you before, this comes very naturally, supernaturally for my wife. We'll be in Target and we'll walk past this baby that sort of looks like a little dinosaur. And she'll be like, she is so cute. I love her shoes. You know, she'll just point to the shoes and away from the dinosaur baby. Um, but she's a relentless encourager. She's a relentless encourager. And I struggle with this. I was not good at this because God was having to constantly eliminate vain conceit from, our life, from my life. And it's destroying many of our relationships. It's destroying many of our marriage. And when I began to make a transition in this is when I realized that it didn't cost me anything to encourage somebody else. It cost me nothing. Like biblical times, like Jesus' time, Paul's time here, they lived in what was known as an honor-shame society. Like, we're, we're very much a, a financial uh, is kind of our currency. Money is our currency. Um, there's still some uh, waves of status and, you know, those type of things. 
But their, their culture was very honor and shame. Like honor was the currency of the day. And you wanted to acquire honor uh, more than you wanted to ac- acquire money. Um, it's just how people viewed you in society. So this is all built in. So he's speaking to people who get this. It's woven into their culture. Um, but God began to do this in my life and realized that it, I wasn't losing honor by giving away encouragement. And that really, what happened through that is God began to refine my soul through that encouragement. So if you're battling that vain conceit, become a relentless encourager. Discover your true identity in Christ. All of us. And it comes out of just naturally out of our old self. And we we don't want to walk in the old life. And that's what Paul's saying, live a life worthy of the calling in the new self. We'll find things to fill the little gap that we have not allowed God to fill yet. Whether that's addiction, whether that's new toys, um, whether that's likes or comments on social media, whatever that is, we'll find little things that will fill up these little gaps in which our identity in Christ has not filled yet. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, if it's possessions, if it's things, if it's, if it's social media, wherever it's at, we just need to prune off some of those branches that are messing up the image of Christ. Because people aren't seeing Christ in that. And so I'd lastly, I'd just say practice the discipline of silence. It's a spiritual discipline, silence. Jesus had the best arguments. Like he shut religious philosophers up all the time. Since he was like 12 and 13 years old, people were amazed at what, how he could orate, and he always had an answer to their best accusations, to their best, deepest questions. Jesus just slayed it. But when he's there being persecuted and now put to trial, he didn't say anything. He just practiced the discipline of silence, knowing that through that, it would allow him to be obedient even to death on a cross, which we'll look at more here a second. Maybe just next time you kind of feel it talking up and you want to tell, you know, spouse like I just did the other day, like, hey, this is what I did. I'm just going to practice the discipline of silence. Next time I want to post something, I'm like, hey, look how awesome my life is when really we hate our life, but we just want everybody to think it's amazing. Come on. Let's be real. Just put it out there. Everything's amazing, right? And we want that image, and it's really vain conceit at the core of that. So practice the discipline of silence. Paul wants our relationships to be a reflection of Christ. Our marriages should be a reflection of the way Christ loved the church. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, that this beautiful mystery of marriage. And Paul was single. Jesus was single. So singleness is really honored in the scripture. So for any of you that feel like I'm talking too much about marriage today, don't misunderstand me. I believe singleness is, is valued in the body of Christ and hasn't been talked about and honored enough. You're not less than as a Christian, like you're honored. Walk in it with confidence. You're not less than than anybody else that's married and white pig, don't worry about it. Just walk in confidence in who God's created you to be as a single adult. Um, I don't even know where I was. Just I'm, I'm passionate about that. I'm honestly passionate about that. But Paul wants our re- re- relationships to reflect Christ and Paul's talking about that in Ephesians 5, that this beautiful mystery of marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church and the sacrifice that takes place. Uh, Paul, Paul kind of begins to tie a bow on, on what we need, what the ingredients are to be walking in humility. And he said, value others above yourself. 
value others above yourself. Can I just be honest? I began to get a lot of freedom in Christ when I understood this. And not just understood it, but when I began to practice this. Because I was constantly, I didn't even realize it. This is years into, into full-time ministry. And I didn't realize that I actually looked down on other people. I didn't realize it. And maybe, maybe you're at where I've been at before, and I didn't realize that I looked down. And, and, and you would never know it because, I mean, I, I was the person. I, I really tried to be the person that would just go and do the least. And I, I kind of did all the, the right things and said all the right things. But in my head and in my heart, I was in this bondage and constant anxiety and stress as I was projecting where I was to where everybody else was. And I realized that I didn't have the same Agape. I didn't. I, I wasn't operating in, in unconditional love. Um, and I think there's a there, there's so many deep things to this. But let me just kind of say this: This is how we reflect Christ when we value others as better than ourselves. When when we do whatever it takes to just honor them and respect them for where they're at and to love them, we value others above ourselves when we put their needs before ours. We value others as better than ourselves when we listen and learn from them. It's one of my favorite quotes. I've never met a man who's not my superior at something, or woman. The quote was a man, but I've never met a person who's not my superior at something. That means I can learn from everybody. That just brings, brings so much humility in my life that I can value this person because you have a lot to teach me and, you, and it just opens up this whole world of humility in me that, man, I've got a lot to learn. I can constantly be listening. It helped me to engage in my conversations better to just, man, what is God teaching me in this moment? What is he teaching me through this person? And to see the God potential in every single person. And I think sometimes the busyness and the craziness of life and kind of even just in our natural flow of life, we forget to see the God potential in other people. The person sitting next to you, the person sitting across from you, there is a God potential that, that he sees. And when we value them, we see the very best in them. And we give the very best in us because we see the very best in them. So I just want to ask you and just challenge you today, do the people closest to you see Christ in you? Do the people closest to you see Christ in you? Let's finish out the scripture here, beginning with verse uh, five. Your attitude should be that. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I just want to highlight for a second that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and the earth. I just want to tell you, 
If you're in this room and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, it's not a, a matter of if you will bow your knee. It's a matter of when you will bow your knee. Because we'll all bow our knee one day. It's just a matter of whether that's today or whether that's when Christ returns for his church and we were unprepared. God is preparing for himself a bride, his church. And will we have walked in faithfulness with what we've been, with what we've received, will we walk that out in our relationships? Let's allow God to flow through us in his agape, unconditional love, in our relationships, in our marriage. Let's be pulling in the same God, Christ-like direction because becoming the best spouse is simply about becoming more like Christ. Because you see, we're, we're unified when we become more like Christ. We both just reflect Christ and that is this beautiful mystery. And so just to get this really practical for us, what are you thinking about this week? Are you, are you thinking about your own needs and kind of your own frustrations? Are you thinking about those of your spouse or your friends or your family and how you can serve others and how you value what they bring? It's very difficult for us to see that on our own and it's only through Christ and receiving the grace that he gives us and he offers us that we can truly walk in, in a, a place of unselfishness and servanthood. My high school philosophy teacher said there's no such thing as an unselfish act. Conversation for another day. But I think naturally he's right. But I think supernaturally God just helps us to follow the example of Christ and walk in complete sacrifice and obedient, even a death on a cross is what Christ did. And he's calling us to walk in it. What branches need to be trimmed in our life, what selfish ambition or vain conceit needs to be removed for our life. God, help us to be more like you. Help us to be a reflection in our relationships of your love. God, if we've undervalued anyone in the kingdom or are still walking in, in you know, blindness, God, like Paul was, I, I pray, God, that you would open eyes today and in this moment.